have it's another stick of fork in it. Back again. Right? <laughs> Last time was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. We it got was. for me, we got some grandmother talk in there right. with the important business with <laughs> Kelly Sims. Kelly Sims was our co-host once again. Always mm-hmm. love when she joins us. Mm-hmm. Um, but this podcast, we got Thomas back. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, it's nice to see everybody. I'm thinking about making this my full-time gig. I'm going to give up the president CEO thing and just do podcasts. That works. Yeah. Wow, what do you okay. Think? <laughs> Come on. I'm still Welcome looking aboard. for something I'm good at. <laughs> yeah. Co-hosting is good. You do that in television as well. Yes, mm-hmm. I have co-hosted TV shows. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on the regular. He's requested all the time in the Tampa Bay area. Sure. So you guys, any morning talk show, Thomas has been there alongside someone to uh, be the host, especially at the holidays. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Thomas, we have a, like an amazing guest I'm super yeah. excited about. Um, I'll open with something kind of a little bit obscure, but why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, so everybody, we're really glad you're here, and we appreciate you giving us a listen today. I think uh, for us here at Feeding Tampa Bay, uh, we often talk about our work in the community, what we do, why we do it, for whom we do it, and how we do it. Uh, But uh, one of the great parts of our work as a uh, food bank is that we're part of a collective of 200 organizations across the United States that are other food banks just like us. Every single county, I think, is covered by a food bank in the United Mm -hmm. States, importantly. Um, And we work collectively. But in order to work collectively, we have a national organization that leads, guides, informs, assists, uh, offers all of us in the network a a wider variety of capability that we would not otherwise have, whether that's advocacy at a national level, policy at a national level, even something as important as food safety. Mm -hmm. Uh, Feeding America guides those efforts for us, and we are a better food bank for being a part of that network, and we're certainly a much better food bank for being a part of Feeding America. Uh, So with us today, we have the president of Feeding America, Katie Fitzgerald, uh, joining us all the way, flying down from Chicago. You moved to Chicago, right? I did move to Chicago. (laughs) All the way from Chicago, we have Katie Fitzgerald. Katie, welcome. Thank you. Thank Welcome you. It's great to, to be here with you. I'm I'm thrilled to be in warmer weather. <laughs> right. What did it's you leave? Beautiful. What did when you did, leave? Uh well, it actually isn't that bad right now. It's uh 60, 55, it's starting to plummet, though. Yeah, starting to plummet. So. Yeah, starting to get cold. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid we're going to get down to the 70s here. Really <laughs> oh, frightening thought. Frightening thought. So the podcast has a history of talking about sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have our own rival. We don't, but we yeah. have rivalries with other people. But we won't even go there. My family is from Michigan. So when I was reading your bio that you went to the two biggest rivals <laughs> in the state of Michigan, tell me how that worked out. Yeah, so it's it's very pertinent right now in the news. I keep checking my news feed oh, yeah. um, if anyone's paid attention. So right, there's I, a little kerfluffle. It, there's been a kerfluffle. <laughs> there has been. Um, <laughs> so I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan. Um, my, I went to East Lansing High School. My dad was a college professor and then a provost at the university. And my family bleeds green. <laughs> and um, so, uh, you know, so that was my whole experience. I mean, I went... When Magic Johnson played for Michigan State, oh. I would oh, go to wow. games. I was at the uh, ch- 1979 championship Larry Bird, rally. yes. Uh-huh. Um, so, like, you know, way deep, deep love for that university. And uh, then I got my master's degree, though, at the University of Michigan mm-hmm. in social work. Um, and great institution, but I 
definitely am a Spartan athletic oh, fan. Oh, so it's not even a question. Not <laughs> even a question for me. And it's been painful. This year's been painful. And then all this crazy ridiculousness uh, that went down. Yeah, they were yes. throwing knuckles. They were. It's yeah, bad. Not good. It's bad. So, um, so anyhow, so I'm really looking forward to basketball season. Yeah. 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 Moving on to basketball. We're out. We don't need that. Yeah. Well, I think it's so interesting. My family's from Grand Rapids, Grand Ledge, Lansing. Oh, yeah. Yep. Going this month. So. So like mine's see. gather girl yes. and there's a rivalry in the family my dad oh, had 10 yeah. brothers oh, and yeah. sisters and either you're green or you're really? blue really had 10 brothers and sisters yes he Always did smoked. Wow. Yeah. okay so a little bit more about you as we start yes. to think about so we'll talk about I want to come back to your education right we think that's okay. pretty exciting to hear more about that but a little bit more on background uh uh, you said your dad was a professor and provost mom did what so my mom um, was an English teacher um, so I. So you had no choice but to get an advanced degree. <laughs> yeah, no, no choice. Yeah, we all got advanced degrees. But what's what's kind of interesting about um, my family of origin is my I'm the granddaughter of immigrants. My mom was the first in her family to go to college, so I'm not too far removed from my my grandfather was a steel worker. Uh, she grew up in Steelton, Pennsylvania, and okay. he went to work at the steel wow. mill every day um, <laughs> in Steelton. And um, and then, interestingly enough, they had a bar and restaurant because my great grandmother um, probably was moonshiner during Prohibition. Wow. Like you know, so fi- when it became legal again, they opened a bar. So my grandfather would go to the mill during the day. Um, shuck coal into the he did a lot of furnace work mm-hmm. and then he would tend the bar at night and my mom grew up on the second floor of where the bar was so wow. she has these fantastic stories of you know being a kid yeah. living above this like yeah. you know steel town <laughs> steelton technically a uh, bar and restaurant so um so that's sort of my family background my dad also um was the son of um uh a police officer and a teacher so uh that's, that's and so you know it's interesting i'm i imagine i'm a scooch older than you uh but it's interesting so your even though your parents parents were trades people right yep. we'll just call that yep they encouraged your parents to go to college or your parents had that own initiative uh they really encouraged them to go to college so my my dad's mom was a teacher um, and my dad went to college. Um, he was, I think, I think his mom was a college graduate. His dad was not. His dad was a police officer. Okay. Um, so it was like she valued that, and that was important. What's interesting about my mom, my mom was the first in her family to go to college, and she was a woman. And she tells these really interesting stories about, especially the men, extended family of men in her family who would say to my grandfather, why are you going to waste your money on sending a girl to college? Because in those days, you know, you'd be a secretary or a nurse, maybe a teacher. Um, And I'm so proud of my grandfather, who, again, was a, you know, a a steel worker who was like, nope, Mm. she's going to go to college. That's what we want her to do. That's what she's going to do. And she did. And um, and it's I, she's a great source of inspiration for me as a woman because she then had her first teaching job. They lived in Denver at the time. I think it was 63. And um, 
you know, she had to quit her job because she was pregnant. Because mm. you couldn't be pregnant in front of children if you were a teacher. Oh, oh my gosh. I mean, that's not right. long ago. <laughs> right. You think, so I was thinking wow. about that. I was thinking about, you know, that um, my father's father was a welder. Uh, and so he lived in, in Virginia, but he would leave the house and go find welding jobs throughout Virginia, Pennsylvania, West Virginia. He'd be gone for months at a time and send his money home. Uh, my father was born in 29, went to, wanted to go to college uh, off the GI Bill. And when he told his father he wanted to go to college, his father said, what do you think, you're better than me? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Right? Ouch. So it's interesting generationally. Well, I think you, you can hear that comment and it can feel bad. Right. Right? And But we, um, and we're going to talk more about this when we talk about our strategic plan tomorrow. So for the listener, you'll hear more about this when coming up. But one of the conversations we heard around equity, access, and culture was how much your culture mm-hmm. dictates uh, your willingness and ability to go forward. So we still hear today, we're talking to some people about college and trade schools, interviewing clients, guests in the community, they would say, well, it's not my family to go to school. We don't do that. Right. Mm. Yeah. So right. to bring it back to you, you grew up in an environment where this was very, very um, uh, strongly encouraged yep. and was an understood uh, uh, outcome or opportunity for you. Uh, how, siblings? I do. I have, uh, I'm the baby of the family. So I have an older brother um, and I ha- who is in labor and industrial relations, now retired. And I have a sister who works for a U.S. congresswoman now oh. yeah yeah so i'm the youngest and then i have three children myself so oh, I have, yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell us about, about them yeah. so i have um a 21 year old who's about to graduate college from the university of oklahoma where i started in food banking uh-huh. um she still lives there and then uh we have a 19 year old at michigan state mm. um suffering through <laughs> The current <laughs> drama, and um, and then we have a fourteen-year-old still at home who is a freshman in high school. Okay, yeah. what what does your husband do? My husband is don't psychoanalyze me, <laughs> a professor. <laughs> Uh, I think it's typecast. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's a professor in microbiology. Hmm. Yeah. So. so you know, it, it, we won't uh, we won't. Uh, <laughs> But I think it's just interesting what you grow up around yeah. and what becomes familiar and interesting to you. I guess it's a subject that's really on my mind. The more we talk about family of origin and how that dictates, you know, the concept of nature versus nurture, mm-hmm. how you end up where you are, encouragement versus discouragement, expectations mm-hmm. versus realities. It's uh, So we might touch a bit more on that as we go through. Mm-hmm. Um, so you grow up, you go to college. When did you decide to get an advanced degree? So, um, so I grew up uh, in a um, socially justice-oriented family. Uh, um, so again, yeah. to your point, uh-huh. Thomas, around nurture. And uh, my dad was a developmental psychologist, so um, also grew up around a lot of that, that influence. He was very involved in early childhood development before people really talked about right. early childhood development, like back in the 60s and the 70s. And so that was an influence on me. And then I had a really fortunate um, experience. I grew up in a college town, and just by nature of where we lived, I grew up in a really diverse neighborhood. So a lot of my peers, I had, I, in fact, I was, most of my peers in my childhood 
friend group were uh, people of color and religious diversity. And my parents, again, were the kind who were like, go with Stacia to the African Methodist Church. Go with Laura to synagogue. Go learn about these things. You know, so I grew up um, in this environment. And as I got older um, and started to get near the end of my high school, I really saw so clearly how some of my peers had really different opportunities than I did. Mm. Okay, so I we were right. still middle class. You know, it was, my parents were still on their like third remortgage of the house to try to help pay for college. It's not like we were, you know, right. super wealthy, but we college was an expectation. They were going to make it happen for my siblings and I. And I saw others of my friends who were going down really different paths because their families couldn't make it happen, mm-hmm. or maybe they weren't expectations. And it was before we had. The kind of language we have now, I think, in the conversation around equity and inclusion and diversity, but especially in equity, I called it opportunity when I was in my late teens and early 20s going into college where I could just see I had opportunity by virtue of being white, by virtue of being middle class. Mm -hmm. And it was painful to me. It was painful to see people who I loved and had relationships with who were really talented and capable and had these barriers. So I um, pursued that kind of course of study in my undergrad. It was a social policy and American public affairs. And I was really interested in how policy shapes opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought I'd become a lawyer. And then I did an internship for a law firm. And I was like, no, I'm not doing <laughs> not that. <laughs> so, um, so anyhow, I took a year off and I did AmeriCorps, which is uh, mm-hmm. like the, you know, a, a a domestic Peace Corps, the AmeriCorps program, and and kind of got my first experience working in a community, working on issues that the community cared about. And that's when I decided to go get my social work degree. And I was really still interested in, in policy. And you will find this interesting, Thomas, because the question that I was really interested in in pursuing my degree is, um, how is it, how do we know that the interventions we put in place actually yeah. help people? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so I, uh, let's come back to that, but I want to ask another question again about you and kind of the formation of uh, what's interesting in this conversation is kind of the formation of how we end up where we are. I worked in the church business for about uh, probably about five or six years, and there's a saying in the church business, either you're born a priest or you become one. <laughs> and those are two very different kind of priests. Neither bad nor good, but some people have a calling at an early age. Mm-hmm. Other people come to it later. So it occurs to me based on your story, and we have colleagues here that it's so amazing to me that that they're 24, 25, and they're like, I want to change the world, <laughs> yeah. right? It's really an Absolutely. interesting thing to see. So one of the stories I tell when people ask if you're at a food bank, they always ask about your origin story. And the story that I often start with, I remember watching the Watergate hearings in 1973 with my mother. I was 10 years old. And I sat through them all summer. My mother was a news junkie. Uh, got all that from her. Very politically astute and aware. And I remember watching those. And what I remember most about that experience, probably four or five years later, I started reading all the books about Watergate. What I remember is it's easy to offer a political opinion about what Watergate was or wasn't or what a president did or didn't. But the lasting impression on me was the sense of responsibility that people felt to community, to what was right and responsible to what was the ethical and appropriate, and to the idea that government was accountable to itself and to the people it served. That impressed me and still does today. 
I bring all that up to ask you, do you have some of those formative moments where you think through and you say, I remember, like you cited your parents and the experience of some of your childhood friends. Do you have moments like that that cause you to go, this, uh, upon reflection, was kind of one of those defining times? Well, I do. I mean, I have I have some kind of funny ones. Um, I remember this is really just, but it's sort of in our family folklore. Um, I went to Pizza Hut one day for lunch with our, our peer group. Happened to be a teenagers, a mix of races and groups, and they wouldn't seat us and they wouldn't serve us, which I they just didn't want teenagers in the <laughs> restaurant. I mean, that was pretty much what it was. But I was so outraged. Like, I was so like, you can't do that, you know? Right. And I, I fought that all the way up to, I think I was like 15 years old, and <laughs> I got like a year's free worth of Pizza Hut for that. Because I was like, you know, God darn it, well you're not you. going to deny yeah. service <laughs> right. to these teenagers. Anyhow, so there's these funny ones. Um, and then I think the more, you know, heartbreaking and serious ones are out of my friend group. And I think what was probably most impressionable upon me in my development was two of my close friends, two African-American men, um, one of whom uh, actually was so talented, wrote the high school musical, wrote the music, wrote the whole play, like incredibly talented, and um, had a really rough home life, right? And no opportunity, and um, ended up uh, he's in prison now, I I think, for murder. And, like, someone who, like, oh. I know is and had every uh, had every capacity mm-hmm. to do something great in the world and uh, didn't have that opportunity. So there's that. And then another one um, who I was really close to who uh, ended up committing suicide about 25 because didn't see a path, yes. couldn't see a path for himself to the, the vision he had for himself and the opportunities to get there mm-hmm. never could come together. Now, obviously, there's interpersonal, right. human psychology, all that stuff at play, too. But, but the, the, the elements that shape these two guys' lives just, to me, felt fundamentally unfair. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that probably if you were to cut open a food banker's heart, you would find several consistent um, uh, behaviors or, or consistent drivers or motivators. One of them would be the sense of fairness. Right. Right. We talk a lot about in our work, we talk a lot about the concept of dignity, that every human being that walks into our world. Uh, Shannon started with us with uh, Trinity Cafe, which is our uh, charity we merged with. But uh, a lot of what you all were built yes. around was dignity the concept. Dignity and respect. Yeah. Dignity Always. and respect. Always. Everyone yep. deserves that yep. opportunity. Yep. Yeah. It breaks me heart, my heart, your stories, because given a just a smidge of a different path could have been a different outcome. Right. Right. And that, you know. My food banker heart or my nonprofit heart is crushed because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that wasn't given and isn't, you know, and what are we going to do about it? Well, and it's and it's it's policies and it's systems and opportunity and it's people. Right. Mm-hmm. Like so I was fortunate to find kind of social work and then go on to serve in nonprofit organizations throughout my career. And I think one the one experience that I had in my career that probably was most personally Every, I mean, everything I do now is very fulfilling, but I'm working at a more, I work at the national office, we're working in the aggregate, we're working on policy and systems change. Um, I miss 
seeing the people and working directly with people who we have the privilege to work with in community. Um, but I, I once led a child abuse prevention and treatment organization and being able to see yeah. families transformed through access to services, including benefits, but also the kind of, uh, you know, interventions that really help families, um, you, you know, resolve some of the issues that are that they're struggling with is just really incredibly fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's kind of go back to that a little bit. So when you got your undergrad and then your advanced degree, did you picture that you would be a provider of services, right? Like on the front lines? Or did you picture yourself as how did you what were you thinking about your career when you came out? Right. Some people want to get directly into the work and others want to study the work, so to speak. Yeah. So great question. Um, I never wanted to really provide services directly myself. <laughs> <laughs> I really like doing it, but I, I really wanted to change the system, man. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I wanted to change um, the rules of the game. Yeah. And um, and so uh Set you know set out to attempt to do that through working. I worked for United Way a bit. I went to work for the Kellogg Foundation for a bit, where we could sort of make investments and try to influence policy and uh, community organizing and those kinds of things that allow people to be mobilized to make sure their voices are heard. Um, and then my husband moving to Oklahoma. That's a whole. That's like a. Yeah, you know, um, where I sort of had to just start over. Are there again. people in Oklahoma? There are people in Oklahoma. Oh, okay. Oklahoma's great. Sorry. I just didn't know anybody. <laughs> so, um, so I moved to Oklahoma, and I actually, um, when I moved to Oklahoma, I did decide because early in my career, I had a chance to what I would characterize as be in a position to invest resources, and I also knew I didn't know enough, and I didn't feel like I was experienced enough. Mm. Um, and I really wanted to do the work. So that's when I sort of shifted and got into more nonprofit services at that point, mostly in kind of helping design the services and implement them and learn from them and make sure, you know, people had the resources that they needed. But, um, but you know, what's interesting, I will, I will say this, because this, when I started in this work, and this might be a thread you want to pull, Thomas, I thought food banks were great. Love the food bank. Didn't see them as change makers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's the 1980s, yeah. 1990s, right? Yeah. That's and the clip we'll pull for this. Uh, yeah. For no. yeah. Well, no, 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 no. But the I'm point kidding. is food banking and food justice and yeah. how we're trying to, sh how food bankings are evolved into change making yes. community partners is really what attracted me to this work. Right. Because I see what you all are doing, what so many food yeah. banks across the country are doing to not just make sure people have food they need today, but to really be helping yeah. make sure that they can achieve yeah, the security. First, yeah, the first food bank I ever visited, I thought, this is a dump and a dead end. Mm -hmm. uh, it was. Mm -hmm. And it was. Yeah. Um, and I want to come back to that, but I want to ask you one other kind of question about your formative thinking and training. And then maybe we'll start talking in, about food banks and Feeding America. So how, how would you describe the reconciliation of policy and program 
against direct service, right? So you started out with this idea. You said a moment ago, I had this idea I could change the world. Let's call it from the top down. Not literally true, but if you think about policy, it tends to sit on top of a problem. But then you got involved more in a direct service level, which tends to be bottom up. Before we go into specifically about food banking, how is that formative to you? How did that kind of start to develop your own thinking? Because the point I'm going to make about myself with food banks, the first one I went to, I think we're going to end up in the same place. So we'll pull that thread in a moment. But you go through that process and you start at the top, you work on the bottom, and somewhere you develop a theology, Mm -hmm. right? What does that look like? Well, I don't know that I'm going to be sophisticated enough to characterize it like as a theology, but I will say um, I... I think I, early in my career, um, worked at the Kellogg Foundation and other places, and I would say I was frustrated that a lot of folks who were involved in the policy making uh, had never done the work, right? had never been in a community and actually had to raise money and actually had to figure out how people are going to come into the building and you know, uh, hire the staff, train the staff, support people who are, you know, probably not making uh, as much as they would in the for-profit sector, but want to come into this work. Like they hadn't. So that is really why I was like, I need to go do that because I felt a bit like um, an imposter. Like, you know, I didn't know, I didn't feel like I understood the work enough to do the sort of systems policy work well. And I think that that's, a challenge that we have, and so, um, so actually, I, I don't, I'm not sure I ever thought I'd come back to the national, to a national organization. Like I loved, uh, I love food banks because I think food banks are at this nexus yes. where um, they're doing direct service. They really understand their communities. They're deeply engaged in community and they're active on policy issues at the local state and even the federal level. So how the farm bill is gonna impact, Mm -hmm. you know, what kids are eating uh, and how seniors are able to be nourished and have the resources Mm -hmm. they need. So so I love that about our work, but but the opportunity to go to Feeding America and try to bring that um, theology, that perspective, Mm -hmm. like, you know, we need to really understand how these policies are going to shape the lives of people facing hunger and the institutions and systems that serve them. Right. So let's talk about this just a, a bit more as we kind of move into your days at the at the food bank in, in, in Oklahoma. Right. So I think we often have had the criticism uh, in our world that do we understand lived experience? Right. And there's a whole other side of that that we're not I'm not going to mention now or going to now, but I want to kind of use that as a way of saying, uh, ultimately, the challenge that a lot of us have in this work um, is the ability to marry the understanding of lived experience against the understanding of policy and large scale systems change. So to go back to that thread that you mentioned that I would agree with. So I came into the Food Bank Network in 09. And I would describe on a scale of one to 10, largely the food bank network in terms of sophistication, a solid six, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. There are a few, right? But they were all food bankers and heroes all. Uh, Absolutely. I think we look at some of those legacy food bankers that, you know, the Bill Bowlings and others of the world that started this effort. But 
But I think the sophistication level really started to shift in my mind, particularly over the last six, seven years, with the understanding that food banks can and should play a much larger role in community well-being. So with that idea in mind, how do you end up at the Food Bank of Oklahoma and what draws you to that? And when you went there, what were you thinking, right? Everybody that gets a new job says, okay, I'm going to, right? What were you thinking when you went into that world and, and describe some of that for us? Yeah. So, you know, part of, part of the answer to that is also an answer um, around um, making your way in the world, right? Like, so, uh, so I am in a dual career um, marriage. We, we moved to Oklahoma. I don't know a soul, but I am, you know, like your, your, your adage, I, I've always wanted to do this work since I was a little girl. And so I was going to find a way. So I had to sort of just start over. So I started working uh, with the Ch- uh, Institute for Child Advocacy in Oklahoma, working at the state legislature, developing policy for kids. That led me to lead a, a child abuse prevention and treatment organization that also sat a bit at that nexus point between policy, because we, we, we worked with a lot of um, families that were involved in the child welfare system, um, and then uh, eventually led me to the food bank. So the food bank was not really on my radar screen, to be honest. Um, the food bank reached out, because they were looking for a new CEO. And because like you, my, my earlier couple decades before, or 15 years before, was that food banks were wonderful, but they were a little more, from my limited understanding at that point, kind of band-aiding the problem of economic insecurity. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand or have exposure to what they were doing now to try to work on economic security in a bigger way for the families who unfortunately would have to access a food bank. So um, what hooked me was that I learned that the food bank, the Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma, under the leadership of Rodney Bivens, um, had started these food and resource centers. And the idea of those um, developed in, in high need areas that were lacking access to resources beyond food mm-hmm. was to bring those resources together under one roof, make sure that families and people who would access the food charitable food system, because that's something we all need every day, um, also could talk about what's going on in their life that is impacting their food security so that other services could be provided. And I learned that the food bank was very active in the farm bill, federal policy, and at the state level, really working on broader than food security, working on some economic security work too. And then I was like, oh. It's a horse of a different color. Yeah, it's a horse (laughs) of a different color. And I was like, okay. So um, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to go and uh, be at that food bank and really thought, this is it. This is a. This is this is work. It's gonna. It's hard work, as you know. Right. It's gonna take a while um, for us to trans. We're at sort of a transformative stage in our in food banking history in this country. Um, and then uh, Claire called from Feeding America and asked me to come and work yeah. at the national office. We're gonna get at that one in a moment. <laughs> so you get to, and I think uh, I think Katie, I would say that. Uh, people often ask me why a food bank. Uh, if you were to ask my wife, one of the things she would tell you is, I could care less about food. Mm-hmm. Right? I would eat the same turkey sandwich every day for the rest of my life and not think twice about it. Right? 
although I think far more now about the implications of food. But what I love about a food bank, it is, is a tremendous platform for change, uh, for integration, for collaboration, mm-hmm. right? As you got to Oklahoma and you started to survey that world, what were you thinking you wanted to accomplish there? Like when you saw these regional centers, and Rodney was ahead of his time. Again, our listener wouldn't know this, but there are cardinal food bankers around the network that really built the network that exists today. Rodney was much more of an innovative thinker in his way of approaching things. So you get there. What are you thinking about working on? What do you see as what you want to build in that local community? Because the other part I should have said earlier The difference at the Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma is they never would have attracted a person that worked for the Kellogg Foundation before, right? That's the difference that we see in the network today is you have leaders coming into this work that see far more the platform as opposed to the service. Yeah. So you go into the Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma. What are you thinking you want to accomplish and what are you wanting to do? Yeah. I, I know you get plucked out pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. So I did, wasn't there long enough to, to get a lot accomplished. But um, what I saw was the foundation of the future infrastructure, mm. right? So we had there were these food and resource centers that um, were bringing together an intersection of food support and a really dignified uh, shopping experience, kind of like a free, uh, you know, or a grocery store experience, mm-hmm. beautiful, dignified experience, um, but also with case management services to allow a broader array of services to be provided. Um, but but it was it 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 was at its infancy. Yeah. You know, it was just sort of starting, and so I could see opportunities for health service integration. We could see opportunities for, you know, more economic uh, mobility and and workforce development programs on site. There was just, it was like a limitless opportunity. And in, you know, you and I talked about this before, Thomas, one of the things that is true about the charitable food system in this country is our estimates are over the last couple of years, on average, maybe about 50 million people, 50 million, 50 million, are accessing the charitable food system in this country. There's no other service system uh, that is 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 intersecting that many people's lives. So it's an it's a it's a wonderful way to connect people to other services of support. So I saw that opportunity and really believed that that was the future of where we were headed. Yeah, we launched our last strategic plan three and a half, almost four years ago. The guiding principle after we interviewed food banks around the country, local, you know, we we did a, a significant amount of work in trying to understand one of the what was going on. One of the guiding principles was more people will access food relief than all other charities combined. Therefore, we are the gateway, gateway. for someone that comes yep. into the social services arena. It doesn't make us more important than other social services, but it makes us that access or nexus point for someone that comes into the world. And some food banks, as you now know, working nationally, they handle the food part and they're comfortable in that space. Others, as you said about the Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma, said, well, this is an opportunity to really create lasting change uh, and difference. I think we look at much the same here. Uh, We think much more about economic capability than we do necessarily just food capability. So let's talk a little bit about one day you're sitting at your desk um, and you're eating your cheese sandwich at lunch and you get a (laughs) phone call uh, from the national office. 
Yes, yes. So, um, so uh, we have a, an amazing CEO at Feeding America. I know you would agree, Clara Babino Fontano, and um, she's an extraordinary leader. And what makes her extraordinary is she she really doesn't operate based on a lot of assumptions. She's just a really open, free thinker. Challenges her own thinking all the time. So I know she was calling me and probably. 20 other food bankers and here's uh, what did, she didn't, knew didn't, you didn't get, get that call, call. No. <laughs> no. i just, I just no. want to know to no. listeners I, I didn't i didn't receive any phone calls but but um the national office uh, and and for listeners who are experienced in nonprofit work um there are a lot of national networks there's united way uh Salvation Army, um, Boys and Girls Club, you know, they have sort of a similar structure, national office, chapters, or or partners out, out serving communities. And at the time, the national um, executive team had no one who had food banking experience on the executive team. Um, and so she just knew that she needed to recruit some people from the network who had food banking experience. So I'm sure there were other people she talked to. But what's funny about that story is I... I told her and I told uh, the people who were involved in the search, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not who you want. Because I'm a social worker. And and I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't come from the food industry. And you I'm were hired a, as a COO at the time? I was hired at the COO. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but they called back about three months later after I had told my husband, I said, well, I, I talked to the folks and told them, you know, thanks for talking to me, but I don't think I'm really what you're looking for. And then they called back and said, yeah, we think maybe you are what <laughs> you we're are. looking for. But anyhow, long story short, I went there. And um, and it is because of where we are at this juncture in transforming, I think, right. as a network from uh, it, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Right. From serving food, making sure people have access to healthy food, and creating pathways for economic security. Many causes of hunger are directly related to job stability. That's why Feeding Tampa Bay is proud to be supported by K-Force, a leading solutions firm specializing in technology and other professional staffing services with top employers nationwide. Headquartered in Tampa Bay, K-Force is dedicated to strengthening our local community. If you're interested in exploring unique career path options that create opportunity for the future you envision for yourself, visit www.kforce.com to learn more about their corporate and contract jobs. Yeah, and so if we were to follow your narrative a little bit as a, your career narrative, you've you know talked about policy from the top down and, and support from the bottom up. So as you're contemplating taking the job at National, you're moving way away from, and you mentioned this a few moments ago, you're moving way away from the person who will walk into a pantry uh, to get a bag of groceries. Uh, was that a difficult choice? Was it more resonant with what you wanted to accomplish in your career? Uh, you're also probably at an age, you've been at National for three or four years. Yeah. So you're probably at an age where you're really starting to think about, okay, um, where am I really going to go? I think there are those points in all of our careers yeah. where you realize you might stay here or I may see something far differently. So this is an important moment in your own life, right? Yeah. So for me, I mean, it's a great question because um, there was a part of me that did not want to go back to working at the national level because because of what you described. Like I still have, to this day in my mind's eye, I'll never forget my office at, um, wasn't at the food bank, it was actually when I worked at the um, organization that served children and families. We created the first boys and girls club in that community. And um, that's one of the things I'm like, I think about a lot. I just think like today, right now, 
maybe there are kids who are there, and I had some small part of of being able to do that, so that those kids had opportunity and relationships. Mm-hmm. But still, can see the kids getting off the bus and going by like my office window. So, so I'm a like you know a big giant heart bleeding, you know, like, um, but, but I also know how important policy is. And I, I knew people who've had the experience delivering services need to be in the room Mm -hmm. now where I think, and so that's why I took the job, but I actually think the next evolution is not just people who've provide services, the people who understand the issue, who are experiencing food insecurity and economic insecurity, need to be at the table, need to be leaders in the movement to end food insecurity. And I'm very excited that that's also where we're at as a as a movement, is it's not just those who provide service, it's really partnering with people in community to create the kind of communities that we want and need for us all to thrive. And that is a uh, that is something we have to do together. Yeah. So, so again, without getting too wonky, what is a COO of a national organization tasked with? Uh, what what would you see as uh, as your responsibilities walking into that job? Because now you're in a position of significant influence, right? Your ability to leverage change across moves from one a regional food bank in Oklahoma to 200 food banks across the United States. How do you start to think about that and, and you know, what was kind of your own personal mandate or professional mandate as you walked in? It's a great question. Um, so how I experienced... If, if anybody had ever called me about the job, I might have, but, but I never got a call. <laughs> Just pointing that out again for the listener. No phone calls. Waited. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's it, uh, every organization is unique, right? Um, as the COO... It's really my job to sort of make the sausage, make sure the sausage gets made. And and we're not a food bank. So for the listeners who follow food banks or food banking, you know, we don't actually receive any food at the national office. We don't have warehouses. So that part of quote unquote operations is not what I do now. The chief supply chain officer reports to me, our our chief network engagement officer, research, innovation, and IT. And among those teams and my job is to really make sure that our teams are working synergistically to support the network and to advance our strategies. Um, I think the other dimension of my job is to work in concert with our network. So um, we're in a net, we're in a federated network and we really don't believe, and, and people can kind of debate this, that the national office, but we don't believe the national office should tell food banks or community-based organizations what they should do. You know, we, we believe that communities and the people who are in communities should be influencing your choices about what you need to do as a food bank. And we're there to enable and support those choices. And so it's really important that I work, I work with the National Council of Food Bankers. Um, we work on, we just, after a couple of years, renegotiated a whole strategic plan. And the kind, a good, a good make it really tangible. Um, we wanna make sure that our 
partners in the field, food banks, are able to source as much available food in this country as possible and to share that food across the country to make sure that people who can access that food can do so. So one of the things we do, for instance, is we have a a technology platform that we've created, MealConnect, that helps ensure and will evolve over time that we can capture all that food and get it to people facing hunger um, as easily as possible. So let's, again, I I hope uh, my co-host doesn't think this is too much inside baseball, but I think one of the interesting things that we'll describe to people about the food bank network is that Feeding America was created by the food banks. All the food banks existed first, and ergo, uh, you all report into the network of food banks, which is unusual because all the other organizations you cited, they have a top-down philosophy. You have a collective philosophy, philosophy yeah. you have to manage. Talk about that a little bit in terms of an organizational setup and how do you create success when there are when there's that kind of, of setup versus uh, you have a, I'm, I'll just use the YMCA nationally, right? They can say we want everybody to do X, Y, or Z and pretty much the wise will follow that on through in a good way. It's not meant to be negative. In your world, you have to negotiate, manage, right? Uh, we have 200 food banks, all of whom, as it turns out, have an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Lots and of even more importantly, their opinion, they're all right, which right. is amazing because all 200 are right. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, f- I feel like it's a little bit like democracy, right? Yeah. Like it's messy yeah. sometimes. Um, it's... It's really important to be relationship-centered, so we work really hard at that. You know our CEO comes out and visits food banks. She is, like, always on the road, um, as as are we, to the greatest extent possible. Um, I think it's about um, influence. I think, like, good organization leaders, even in a single organization, if they're leading by command and control, I personally believe that's a less successful approach than leading to influence. So that's what we try to do, is we try to share our point of view honestly and openly with our partners and influence the thinking. Um, and, we, and, we, and we also, you know, we, may, we provide, I think on average, 280 million in grants to our network over the last three years. So we invest in hunger and health, like you, you all have been a leader in hunger and health partnerships. We're raising money and investing in that. And that's a way to influence uh, those outcomes to actually support that work without telling people and wagging our <laughs> finger, you should do this. So we, we try to create the value proposition yeah. for them in a way that they want to follow. Yeah, we would say, I would say, you know, I guess you all could chime in on this and I think you want to answer this correctly because I'm asking it. Um, you all would say, we're a pretty big democracy here. Mm-hmm. And there are days that that is a wonderful thing and there are days it's a total pain in the butt, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a wonderful culture here, very open. Right, but the culture requires the ability to negotiate and navigate, right, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, right, I think that's an interesting thing that that's how you see your work as well. We see it much the same here. Mm -hmm. It's the harder pathway, but it's the more enduring. It is, and and in the moment, I think sometimes feels like decisions sometimes feel slower than they might otherwise. But to your point, Thomas, it is the more enduring because you've built... Own, you've built a shared investment and relationships, and that's what we're trying to do with this network. It, I think it's a pretty remarkable thing that this network, which covers every county in the United States, is as unified as it is working synergistically 
um, when we're a really diverse yes. country, mm-hmm. yes. we don't agree on a lot. Yes, and those sure. 200 food banks all have very different philosophies and theologies as to how to approach totally. problems, right? It is an interesting thing. I think, you know, as I mentioned before, you could cut open the heart of food bank because you'd find some commonalities, right? And I think uh, we would say about us— um, We've hired virtually no one that has ever ever had any food banking experience. In fact, we don't look to do that at all. We look for a particular kind of human being, mm-hmm. which has really allowed us to kind of dictate uh, our success. So let's talk a little bit about, I just want to touch on, because I think it must have been, you got to the food bank, uh, excuse me, national office when? Oh, so I started mid-January 2020. <laughs> yeah, I thought that's where we were going to be time-wise. So... <laughs> Right, so you're moseying on up to Chicago. You're going to start this fun new job, and yep. March 15th, yep. Uh, yep. the world changes. Yep. Uh, you know, again, for our listener, maybe just talk about what that was. So you know food banking, right? You don't know national, but but just talk a little bit about what that was like for you, what it was like for the national office, maybe some of the formative moments of that process. I, I don't want to, you know, the pandemic is not an old subject, but, but I think it's important for people to hear uh, what you all had to do to navigate your way through the largest crisis any of us has ever seen. Yeah, so um, one of the really salient moments I remember, so I started mid-January, and it was the first week of March, actually, um, where we were at a policy conference in Washington, D.C. There's a big policy conference between the Food and Research Action Council, FRAC, and Feeding America. Folks come to influence the national agenda. And... um, it was when the first few cases were showing up in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And Linda Najet, who leads mm-hmm. Food Lifeline one of the there. Great leaders. Great leaders yeah. in our network. Uh-huh. Um, you know, one of our, our legends yes. in the network mm-hmm. um, was communicating with us, and they were trying to figure out how in the world they were going to um, meet people's needs because things were starting to shut down in Seattle. And it's like, I think we all have a bit of a, like, we can't remember what it was like, but, <laughs> you block. know, things were shutting down. And um, and food banks, and we, you know, there was no personal protection equipment. Everyone will remember hand sanitizer, face masks. We wanted all that to go to hospitals and clinics. So food banks were just trying to figure this out. So it was at this meeting in March, and... I'd been on the job like what? 65 six, days. Six, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. two months. Uh, didn't even know everybody at the national office yet. And we decided to shut down travel. And just like everybody else, um, I, I know our staff was kind of griping. They couldn't believe it. And um, we all thought, oh, it'll be a couple months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it'll be exactly. a couple months. Yeah. Um, fast forward pretty quickly. Everything snowballed from there. Um, and, you know, I we called it we came up with the term the perfect storm for yeah. our network right yeah. so um supply chain was completely disrupted as folks i don't need to tell the listeners about um pretty early on uh, milk was being dumped crops were being turned over mm-hmm. animals were starting to get euthanized because there was that the just the the supply chain had had sort of swung so fast that all those food service uh uh, providers, so your colleges and your schools and your, you know, 
uh, all of a sudden were not buying that food. Um, and so farmers were not selling their food. Um, we couldn't buy food to save our lives. We had some money and we were behind Walmart and Target and everybody else. And um, so the supply chain was a mess. Demand, as you all know, was off the charts because people all of a sudden weren't working. And, and we know that majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, and the operating model was uh, our food banks were figuring that out. So what we did at the national office um, is a quick, we quickly stood up a task force, like not unlike what food banks did. And we started collecting all of the learnings from each food bank as they were setting up uh, no touch, low touch distribution models, as they were figuring out how they were handling the, the volunteer work. We were working on the policy front to get support with National Guard help and, uh, you know, all the talking to the USDA. Um, not long after in April, CFAP came about, which we were very pleased to see. It was, it was kind of not implemented altogether great, but in, in a lot of ways, it was wonderful and, brought, and really helped American farmers. Right. CFAP was a process where the government freed up resources from farmers to bring food relief into food Correct. Banks. Correct. So, so all that milk that was being dumped and animals who were going to be euthanized and crops are being turned over, the U.S. government went and bought that and then allowed food banks to put that food into boxes and get it to people who were showing up at these distribution lines. And one of the things I'm so proud of, to give an example of how the national office works with local food banks, we that program, the, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, got announced, it was mid-April in my memory, um, and we have a team that works in D.C. that works closely with the USDA um, and Congress. So we knew it was coming, but nobody knew much. The USDA, frankly, didn't know what they were doing at the time. They were kind of making up that program as they go, too. We had a weekend to ask every, you'll remember this, Thomas, every food bank in the nation that is part of our network, so 200 food banks, we need to know in two days' time how much milk you can take, how much produce you can take, how much protein you can take. And we built a website, and we made sure that the vendors who were making bids on that food could connect with organizations like Feeding Tampa Bay to get you that food. Um, so that's how the national office yeah worked with local food banks, and, and I think, those were the days. Yeah, and I think for the listener, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring that story out, one of the things we really struggle with sometimes is localism and regionalism, right? And so we will have, we serve 10 counties, and a county will say, well, I'm only concerned about my county, and we will say to that county, well, just FYI, only about 26 or 27% of all the food in your county comes from your county. Mm-hmm. We are sourcing that regionally, statewide, and nationally. Mm-hmm. Further on, we'll share during crisis, right? I think uh, during Hurricane Irma, we were a nexus point for that hurricane. I think we got 100 tractor trailer loads of food, none of which came from the state of Florida, none of which came, all came through the Feeding American Network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that your story illustrates and that we always want people to understand, being a part of this collective enriches the communities that people listening to this live in every single day. Uh, because if you're in a rural or urban or suburban area in our 10 counties, chances are the support on your table today comes because we have a relationship nationally with Feeding America, or just as you said, Feeding America has advocates working hard to make sure that policy 
Yeah. Which is where I want to go next. Policy changes lives, which is where I want to go next a little bit. Feeding America works really hard at policy. Now, we, I, I, would, I would like to ask you two questions to answer. So first is, why does policy matter? Right? Why do food banks care? Why do folks listening to this, why does policy matter? Uh-huh. Right? Um, and second, how does Feeding America view policy and what are some of the priorities that you see? Okay, well, why does policy matter is a, is a big question. Um, you know, I think I'll speak to it um, from the perspective of just sort of thinking about food policy and agriculture policy in our country. Um, the USDA um, in this country, the pro- federal nutrition programs we have touch every one of our lives, yeah. whether we realize it or not. So um, your kid goes to an after-school program and might benefit from a snack that's provided there. That organization probably is a part of a program we call uh, CACFP. Does it's an acronym, but it it's how programs are able to get food that they get reimbursed by right, the federal it's a federal government. program. Federal program, for, right? That yeah. ends up in a state level. Yeah. That ends up on a table of a child. Correct. Right, but it comes federally. Comes federally. Flows to the states. The states then give it to right. uh, local organizations. Or another good example, and, and this really, um, in Oklahoma, I would see this a lot. So there's a, another program that f- is one is a federal nutrition program called the Summer Feeding Program. Yeah, we do that here. Yeah, you guys do that here. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of folks maybe who are listening may be aware of like when they drive through their town in the summer and there's like, you can get free meals here for kids under 18. That's what that program is. And again, that's federal money flows to the states. Usually it depends on the states. Sometimes it's the Department of Ed. Sometimes it's the Department of Human Services that will then make those resources available to child care centers and local schools and food banks and others to make sure that kids can eat in the summer if their family um, is really economically strapped. Uh, our seniors, right? Mm-hmm. So um, what I think folks fail to remember when we talk about the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is SNAP, which some people might remember was food stamps, is that most of the people who benefit from SNAP are our seniors, Mm -hmm. people with disabilities, and children, none of whom can really do a whole lot to change their economic sort of circumstances. If you're 85 years old, you're pretty much out of the workforce. Um, So these programs are fundamentally keeping us nourished as a nation um, and are really important for the people we love in our lives. Yeah, we've often said, um, and it's, it's, uh, it's harder to make this claim today just in America, but that food is a bipartisan issue. That everybody totally. everybody can agree that all of us should have access to food. So when Feeding America thinks about its priorities in advocacy, what are some of the things you all are working on to make sure that policy shifts the narrative and the outcomes uh, for folks here in Tampa, Florida? Yeah, so, so what we want to make sure um, for folks in Florida and every nation is that SNAP, uh, first of all, remains strong. And, um, and, and supported uh, through this next farm bill, which is coming up in five years. And that is, uh, you know, recently those benefits have been increased during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. 
uh, we had pandemic snap, which allowed people who all of a sudden, for the first times in their lives, had to get SNAP, have access to that program and feed their children and their families. So it's really important to keep, that's a major policy priority for us, is to keep SNAP fully funded with a level of support for people that, um, that they need to be nourished. The second one that we're working on is what's called the Emergency Food Assistance Program. Mm-hmm. So the Emergency Food Assistance Program is, um, we call it TFAP, and it's food that the USDA essentially, kind of like the, that coronavirus food assistance program we talked about, purchases from American farmers and then makes avail- available to the charitable food system feeding Tampa Bay and other food banks through their state government agencies. And that's good for farmers. It it helps the American farmer. And that's why we work really closely with American farmers on the farm bill, because uh, nutrition, the nutrition title and the ag title go hand in hand. Um, And it helps people facing hunger who you know, have a circumstance that they didn't anticipate that's going to require that they visit Feeding Tampa Bay or your partners. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the the wraps that quote unquote government support or subsidies, you know, gets, and, and again, we'll, we'll walk this line as finely as we can, is that, as you just said, that food that ends up here in Tampa, Florida on the table of someone who is struggling also benefits the farmer who is now getting compensated for their harvest that they otherwise would not have got money in their Absolutely. pockets. And then the other part of the farm bill, which is important to note, you mentioned SNAP. For every dollar of SNAP, it's about a dollar seventy-seven in economic value to our community. So our local retailers you bet. are having SNAP dollars spent inside their stores, yep. which provide net benefit to their bottom line, but also creates value, I think, for the, uh, we know, for the individual that uses it. And I think that's some of the dichotomy we see in some of the narrative around policy today is that we want certain things to happen or not happen because we have a political position. But most often we find that good policy, when thoughtfully applied, built and applied, has a wide impact for the better as opposed to just simply a quote-unquote tax increase. That's right. I want to come back to, as we we probably need to start to circle in, uh, I want to come back to the pandemic for a moment. Um, so for us, we learned some lessons out of that. I'll share one that, again, continues to resonate with me today. And I'd like to ask you what lessons you learned that kind of continue to inform, we'll use your term, uh, my term, again, theology, how you're approaching this work. <laughs> so one of the things we shared is that the pandemic showed just how fragile our ecosystem, infrastructure, households, and communities are. That, as you mentioned, the widespread ambush on the way of life we knew and the quickness with which everything fell apart should and did scare the heck out of all of us. Yep. Because we found, I think early on, we used to cite this. We did some survey work. Uh, we set up mega distributions like many of our families, and we would see four and 5,000 cars at this particular one. And early on, 68% of the people, do I remember that number right? Yeah. 68% of the people had never been in a food line before. Yep. So it's easy to have the narrative about welfare, mothers, all that kind of stuff. Guess what? Right. 68% of our community had no resources to draw upon. Yep. For us here at Feeding Tampa Bay, this has really influenced our thinking about long-term household stability. 
I use that as a way of asking you a question now to say, what are the lessons that you think you've learned that you're thinking about at the work at the national office that you would say this has guided our thinking or changed our thinking or opened our eyes a bit? So, I mean, uh, that, that too is sort of our major takeaway. I mean, one of the major takeaways was um, if, if you looked at the data, um, it's one thing to sort of know if you look at just sort of economic um, livability data, that people are living really close to the margin and a paycheck or two away from being food insecure, it's a whole other thing to see it happen before your eyes, which we all witnessed, right? (laughs) So it was um, sadly validating what we know, which is in our country, way too many people are... um, uh, economically vulnerable mm-hmm. to uh, food insecurity and poverty with just one loss of a job, one illness, you know, those kinds of things that we talk a lot about in food in food banking. Um, so that's one thing. And so that means for us, and I think for you all, because I hear you at Feeding Tampa Bay talking a lot about this, is that a, the solution to hunger is not just making sure people have access to healthy food. It is that, and it is making sure that those federal nutrition programs are solid and solvent in there. It is also working on economic security mm-hmm. in this country. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of the, the, the next evolution, I think, of the hunger movement in the United States is really recognizing that this also needs to involve real conversation about how do we help make sure that people are not that economically vulnerable. Um, So so that's that. And then, you know, the other thing I would say that we learned at the national office is how incredibly agile, adaptive, resilient, strong this food banking network is. Um, You all, against literally all odds of <laughs> supply chain disruptions, no personal protection equipment, um, you know, not having your staff, you know, showed up with courage yeah. and fortitude and made sure that people in your community had the resources that they needed. Yeah, I don't think we'll ever be able to adequately tell the story of the bravery of, right. you know, the two colleagues I'm sitting with here today. and. Yep. Um, I just don't think, you know, I remember those dark days early on and I remember being so scared. Yeah. Uh, every day I'd wake up and I'd have a knot in my stomach, like, how are we going to do this? What are we going to do? And as you said, every tool and technique known to us abandoned us. Yep. You know, whether it was volunteers or food resources, retail, all that. Uh, I do think, I, I you know, I, I've shared this before with our team and probably on some of these other podcasts, more than anything else, we are judged often, and rightfully so, about our results. What I am most proud of is our bravery. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that will be an everlasting, seeing all of us out there with masks, gloves we could find from somewhere showing up, <laughs> right? Hand uh, sanitizer, maybe you cooked that. yourself, <laughs> right. right? Because understandably, people were really behind, and you said this before, they were really behind making sure first responders. Yeah. Right? We tried to say as carefully as we could because you never want to undermine the support that went to the appropriate places, but we were first responders too. Yeah. We never shut our doors for two minutes. Nope. Not once. Nope. We showed up as best we could yep. every single day. And there are heroes out here in our organization that I just don't know. Um, 
you know, we often say here in the food banking world, and I like the way of thinking it probably guides how I view our work, our names will never be on anything, but our fingerprints will be all over it. Yeah. And I think that's what makes us proud. Yeah. Uh, is that no one's ever going to remember the three of us, <laughs> but somewhere, and as you said, you still remember that moment where you sat at your desk and you saw kids getting in a line coming into a place that were not for your team's efforts. Yep. Those folks wouldn't have that place to stand and that opportunity to move yeah. forward. One, one quick closing. We might be closing soon, but a um, story that you just reminded me of is we had a young man, Chris, who worked at the Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma. And it's just an incredible story to your point where he was in, he is a warehouse selector, uh, order selector, and opened up a box on one of his first days. And that food bank operated a backpack program. A lot of food banks across the country still do that, which is provide backpacks of food for the weekend for children. And he saw these backpacks and he had those backpacks when he was a kid, yes. you know? So he just, yeah. it stopped him in his tracks that right. now he was a part of right. the system of trying to make sure that kids had access to that yeah. food. So um, Shannon has a few questions we ask everybody, but I'm going to ask you two to finish up with <laughs> from my perspective. The first question is going to be professional. And the second one will be personal for the, so for the first question, where do you see Feeding America headed? You've talked about this some, but if, where do you see Feeding America headed over the next two to three years? What's on your mind, and what do you think the national office is going to focus? You mentioned, you may have answered, you mentioned advocacy, you know, certain things. But in your mind, what's the place you see the, the uh, national office moving? Well, I think probably what I would say is front and center for us, and I think for the members of our network is – thinking about how we make sure every person facing hunger in our communities has access to healthy food and resources. Um, and that means being really honest and looking at disparities by race and place mm -hmm. across the country. And we just know it's a fact that people of color, uh, black families, Native American, Hispanic are anywhere from two to three times more likely mm -hmm. to be experiencing food insecurity than uh, whites. And we know that rural communities are much more likely to be struggling with food insecurity in some ways, uh, in different ways, I should say, in different ways than suburban or urban areas, which also suffer from that challenge. Uh, but their infrastructure is uh, really lacking. So for us, um, it is about making sure that as we move forward, it's sort of not good enough to count pounds and meals anymore. Um, that's not the marker of success. It's how do we measure whether or not the people who need us in our communities are actually accessing the resources, food and otherwise, that they need, and how are we enabling that? And that, I think, is the future of our network, and that's what the national office is thinking a lot about. And then for you. So you now, we had somebody in our team yesterday, we were in a meeting, and they said, 
I still don't know what normal means. I've been at the food bank. They came in during the pandemic. They said, <laughs> you guys keep talking about normal. I have yeah. no idea what normal is. But there is a normalization in your world. Uh, your title changed, I guess, a little while ago. You're now the president of the organization with a CEO uh, in partnership with Claire. But kind of where are you headed? What's on your mind about your own theology and what do you want to see uh, accomplished for you? For me... Personally or in the work? <laughs> well, I think as you live your way out through, as you live yeah, kind of, you again, we talked about you went to college for certain yeah, things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? So um, I think for me, where I'm at right now in our organization is I think we still have opportunity at the national office to be working even more effectively in service of people facing hunger and our partners in the field. And by that, I mean, like any organization, um, we can suffer from silos. We can, uh, you know, be challenged in how we collaborate. We, we, the work we do, all of us here, is complex, and the kinds of services and supports we're trying to provide are complex. So for me, the next couple of years are really about honing how the national office is sort of engineered mm -hmm. to execute in service of our partners even more effectively, and. and you know, with that goes stewardship, because I never, I've, as you know, been doing nonprofit work my whole life. And I frequently think about somebody woke up today and sent us $5, $10, $20, $100, whatever. Um, and they expect us to solve this problem. Yeah. So that is something that I think about a lot. Well, so I know that I have asked a lot of the questions here today. That's okay. Sometimes it's good to listen. Yeah. I'm actually enjoying it with the listeners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, this has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Uh, yeah. The insights that you provided about you and about what Feeding America is doing about our network as a whole. Mm -hmm. Uh, so with that, I think we're close to our witching hour. Is that correct? I think so. The pumpkin is almost turning into a carriage. <laughs> there, we here on, there we go. Here, as, we speak, yes. as we speak. But we have a couple of questions we always like to ask our we guests. We always ask. Huh? We always ask. There's a couple of questions. Two. First one, your favorite memory around a table, because mm -hmm. all good things happen around the table. Okay. Yeah. This, the, there's so many. Um, <laughs> but the one that immediately jumped in my mind, maybe because we were talking about my grandparents, is um, uh, my grandmother's house in Pennsylvania, we would get up for breakfast and there would always be um, pogacha, which is a Serbian white bread, mm -hmm. um, freshly baked, still warm, uh, with butter that had been sort of sitting out and then strawberry jam. Um, ring bologna that she would fry in a pan and eggs and um and we would just sit there as a whole family for probably you know two hours <laughs> if not longer so like coming together waking up you know that feeling when you're a kid and you wake up and you go into that room and you just know this delicious food and the people who love you mm -hmm. are there um to nourish your body and your soul <laughs> is great and it's you know it's what we want for yeah. every kid yeah it's absolutely. what we want for every kid absolutely do you have the recipe to do that in i do not life? i have no idea how to oh, make no. it i was amazed you could, I I amazed you could pronounce it <laughs> <laughs> so our last question is if you were to choose 
to have three people join you at the table for conversation and um, a wonderful meal. Who are those other three people be? They could be someone who's here with us. They could be someone who's not here any longer. Who would be your favorite three people at a table? Oh, God, that's such a hard question. Um, you know, um, I think I, I, there's, there's like all the obvious things that I think people would say, like, I invite Jesus and Gandhi and like, you know, somebody else, but those have been taken. I, those have been taken right? So I'm not going to go Next. that easy route. I actually think like if I tomorrow could just, I think I would get, um, friends of mine who I've not been in touch with for like a couple of decades, like people, good friends from college, childhood friends who, um, there's just something about sharing a life journey with mm -hmm. people, people who knew you when you were a kid in your formative life to be able to like sit together over dinner and share what we've learned mm -hmm. and what our lives have evolved into and children and um so for me if i had to pick now i'd pick uh, laura who i think lives in california now i'd pick Kristen, who's in minneapolis and maybe sue who's in north carolina and i wow. just we'd a have collection a collection of friends hmm. what ball. would you be eating bogotra oh, mexican <laughs> mexican for sure and yeah, margaritas and <laughs> yeah. you know all all the all the eaters, mm -hmm. all the eaters, <laughs> all the eaters, surrounded by friends. <laughs> Katie, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a pleasure to get to know you and hear about really who you are and how you serve at a national level with hunger relief. Thomas, always a pleasure to listen to you as well. Thank you so much for your thought leadership and all you do for our team. You can learn more about Feeding Tampa Bay and how to join the movement at feedingtampabay.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and TikTok at Feeding Tampa Bay. <laughs>